Good morning, everyone. Today we are continuing our teaching series from the Old Testament book of Numbers, entitled A Table in the Wilderness, where we are exploring how to find God and the table that he has prepared for us when we find ourselves in desolate places. The Israelites are journeying through the wilderness on their way to the land that God had promised them. And last time, we saw that all of their complaining about the food that they had to eat, or maybe more accurately, they're complaining about the food that they didn't have to eat, was too much for Moses. Moses was overburdened, he was frustrated, and he was feeling isolated and alone. And in response to all of that, God raised up and placed his spirit on a group of people who would share the burden with Moses. Well, as we continue the story in Numbers chapter 13, we're going to see today that as the Israelites get their first glimpse of their destination, as they get their first glimpse of the land that God had promised them, what they find challenges their faith in a very fundamental way. This morning, we're going to see the importance of staying calm and seeing the challenges of the wilderness with eyes of faith as opposed to eyes of fear. Numbers chapter 13 begins with God commanding Moses to send one leader from each of the tribes to explore the land of Canaan. And like he did when God told him to gather 70 elders, Moses immediately responds and assembles a group of leaders for this very important mission. And in Numbers chapter 13, verses 17 through 20, Moses gives them some very specific instructions for their journey. Numbers chapter 13, verse 17 says, When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So Moses is asking here for a very thorough report. He wants a thorough report of the land, the produce, the people, and the towns. And then he also wanted the group to bring back a sampling of the fruit from the land as well. And so with those instructions in mind, listen now to verses 21 through 25 of Numbers chapter 13. It says, So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. 
That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So we learn from those verses that the 40-day reconnaissance journey through Canaan extended from the Negev as far north as Rehob and then back again, which in total was approximately a 500-mile journey, 250 miles out and 250 miles back across a really diverse and challenging terrain. And the group returned to report their findings, not just to Moses, but also to the entire community. And their report is interesting because despite the fact that these 12 recognized leaders went on the same journey, and despite the fact that they all saw the very same things, there were nevertheless two very different interpretations of what they saw. There was what we'll call a majority report, and then there was a minority report. Ten out of the group of 12, while they definitely saw a land that was flowing with milk and honey, 10 of the 12 in the party attached a very significant caveat to that description. Listen to Numbers chapter 13, beginning at verse 27. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So we hear there that 10 of the 12 explorers were ultimately impacted more by the size of the land's inhabitants than they were impacted by the size of the land's grape clusters. They described the cities as fortified and very large, and they give an exhaustive list of all of the inhabitants, which, to be fair, was not insignificant. And the most notable among those were the descendants of Anak. Anak in Hebrew means neck, and the Anakites were reputed to be people of great physical stature. They were known for their height, and their presence clearly left an impression. So 10 of the 12 explorers returned from the journey with all of the obstacles in view. The land that they saw was definitely abundant, but for them, the inhabitants were just too powerful and too plentiful. And that made moving into this land that God had promised an impossible mission in their eyes. However, verse 30 reveals that Caleb saw things completely differently. Numbers chapter 13, verse 30 begins by saying, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses. Now, something that is important to recognize about Hebrew narratives is that by nature, they are succinct, and they are scenic. 
Hebrew narratives are succinct in the sense that they're very economical when it comes to language and length, which is to say they, they tend to use fewer words as opposed to more words. And then they're scenic in the sense that they tend to do more showing as opposed to telling. And so they are characteristically very indirect in the way that they communicate. And the beginning of verse 30 of Numbers 13 is an example of that. The text is showing us something here, very economically and indirectly. And that is that that the majority report, the report containing all of the intimidating details about the land's inhabitants, was super disturbing to the people. And and it was so disturbing that Caleb had to silence them before his report on the land could even be heard. Right, so we have Caleb here, right, standing up in the midst of this fear and and chaos that's been generated by the majority report. And he says, and and he and he says, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. And so Caleb didn't look at the land and see fortified cities. He didn't look at the land and see undefeatable inhabitants. He didn't view taking the land as another installment in the Mission Impossible franchise. Instead, Caleb was certain that they could do it. There was no doubt in his mind. And his certainty is underscored by by the incredible confidence and the incredible courage that he demonstrates here. Not only is Caleb the minority voice against the 10 explorers who have already spoken, Joshua, we learn in the next chapter, also shares the same opinion. Not only is he the minority voice, but given the description of their reaction, he's also the minority voice among the masses as well. Well, unfortunately, as the narrative continues, we see that fear is the thing that prevails. Numbers chapter 13, verse 31 says, But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so we hear in those verses that as a result of their fears, the group of ten spread a bad report among the people. And their descriptions become increasingly dramatic and distorted. In verse 32, they refer to Canaan as a land that devours those living in it, which doesn't make a lot of sense given all the inhabitants that were were actually living there and the, the bountiful fruit that it offered. And then they also incite fear by continuing to exaggerate the stature of the people. 
by linking the Anakites to the Nephilim, a people who are mentioned only one other time in all of Scripture. Genesis chapter 6, which is a text that describes a crossing of boundaries between the very mysterious sons of God and the daughters of men, says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and that they were heroes of old and men of renown. And that's all that that text tells us. But it's a connection that is nevertheless a part of an effort to cast the Israelites as grasshoppers. It's part of an effort to cast them as tiny people among giants and heroes. Now, one of the questions that surfaces given everything that transpires here in Numbers chapter 13, is what was it that enabled Caleb and Joshua to see things so differently? What was it that enabled Caleb and Joshua to see things so differently? How was it that, that these 12 leaders went to all the same places and had all the same experiences, and saw all the same things, but came to totally different conclusions. And how did Caleb have so much confidence and so much surety that the Israelites could take the land? What was it that enabled him to stay calm while everyone else was becoming unglued? Well, there's one clue in the text, I think, that's helpful for us as we think about this. And it's found in the description of the journey. Listen again to verses 21 through 23 of Numbers 13. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebo Hamath. Then they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman Sheshai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before in Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. Now, we noted earlier that Hebrew narratives are characteristically succinct and scenic. But something else that's characteristic of Hebrew narratives is that they are subtle. Hebrew narratives are subtle. And so unlike modern Western literature, Hebrew narratives typically don't give a lot of physical description and details. And that means that when they do give details, they're usually very important to the story. Now, for all of the terrain and all of the miles that are covered by this expedition of these leaders to the land of Canaan, outside of the beginning and ending parameters of the journey, there's only one city that's named specifically, and that's Hebron. And it's actually mentioned twice. And so that's a signal for us that this detail is significant. Hebron, interestingly enough, is the place where four centuries earlier, 
Abraham moved his tents after he and Lot separated in Genesis chapter 13. Abraham built an altar at Hebron. It was a trading place for shepherds and herdsmen. And most significantly, it was the burial place of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah. So Hebron was a place that was richly associated with the patriarchs. And that means that it was also a place that was richly associated with God's promise for his people. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, that in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to Hebron. And then verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So we see from those verses that not only was this the land of God's promise, but it was also the time of God's promise. That God told Abraham that in the fourth generation, his descendants would return to Hebron, and now here they were. And so it's possible that the experience of passing through Hebron evoked for Caleb and evoked for Joshua the promise that God had made to his people in that place. And that enabled them to see the land through an entirely different lens. It enabled them to see the land not in terms of fortified cities and large people, but instead in terms of the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And it also gave Caleb the certainty that despite the difficulties that that surely lay ahead, that they would ultimately be delivered because God is a God who is faithful. Caleb and Joshua, I would argue, were attuned to God's promise, and that is what enabled them to see differently. That's what enabled them to see with eyes of faith instead of eyes of fear. And in the same way, God's promise is a table in the wilderness for us as well. A table that invites us to stay calm in the midst of the chaos of this incredibly strange and unsettling season and see with eyes of faith as opposed to eyes of fear. The story from Numbers reminds us of something that we see time and time again all throughout the scriptures, and that is that God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his promise. He is faithful to his promise of presence. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14 that although he would be leaving, God would be sending another advocate, the Holy Spirit, 
to help them and be with them forever. And so God is here and he is present with us through his spirit, walking with us through all of the uncertainty and the struggle and the weariness and the loneliness and the fatigue and the loss that we are experiencing just like he was present and walking with the Israelites. But God is faithful to his promise of presence. He is always with us. God is also faithful to his promise to redeem and restore all things. From the moment that Adam and Eve are sent out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 after their rebellion, the rest of the story of Scripture is about God's mission of restoration. It's about God's mission to redeem and restore all things. Jesus came to continue that story as he inaugurated God's kingdom on earth and redeemed the sin of humankind through his death and resurrection. And today, God's story continues in and through our lives as his people. And in Revelation chapter 21, we read that Jesus will come again and finish what he started. That God will come again and dwell among his people and redeem and restore all things. That he will come again and make all things new. That's what he does all throughout the scriptures. And so we can trust that he is doing that in this present moment in which we find ourselves as well. Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness. And Lord, I confess my own struggle oftentimes to look at things through the lens of fear like the Ten Explorers as opposed to looking through the lens of faith. And I'm reminded, Father, this morning of the words of the psalmist. To say, I will not be afraid. I will not fear. For you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory. You lift my head. Thank you, Father, for your constant presence. Thank you for being a shield about us. And Father, I ask that as we make our way through this season, as we continue to walk through the season, that you would lift our heads to see you. That you would lift our heads to see your faithfulness. And that you would lift our heads to see your promise. Would you give us eyes to see the ways that you are at work? Eyes to see your work of redemption and your work of restoration.
eyes to see the ways that you, in your faithfulness, are making all things new. Would you fill us with your hope as we walk through this season together? And would you strengthen us through your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.